Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, working to support students, educators, and public schools as the center of their communities through the Public Schools Unite Us initiative. After a lengthy discussion, the New York State Board of Elections certified a new controversial touchscreen voting machine for use in future elections. Opponents, including some leading government reform groups, say the decision is bad for voters and that the machines don't leave a verified paper trail. They also say they're potentially vulnerable to cyber attacks. The Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt with more. The machine, known as the ExpressVote XL, is made by the company Election System and Software. It uses touchscreens for voters to choose the candidates they want for elected offices and then cast their votes. The machine then prints a ballot on thermal paper, which a voter can view through a glass screen but is not allowed to handle. The ballot is then converted into a barcode. That barcode is fed into a machine that records the results. Currently, all voting machines in New York operate with paper ballots. They're filled out by hand by the voter, and the voter then feeds it into a tallying machine. The board, which is made up of two Democrats and two Republicans, discussed the proposal for hours in a debate that at times grew heated. Democratic Commissioner Douglas Kellner raised several objections, including whether the thermal paper meets the board's environmental standards and whether the lack of an actual paper ballot violates New York state law, which requires that there be a paper trail that can be used if a recount is needed. We should be steering our voters, our county elections officials, towards hand-marked paper This system is significantly more expensive and has these other issues and lacks the confidence of a substantial number of voters in the community. Republican Commissioner Peter Kaczynski disagreed with Kellner's concerns, saying it's up to the individual counties who would choose to buy the machines to determine whether the touchscreens are right for them. That's not our Fair job. Point. I mean, that's the county's job. If the county exactly. voters say to their point. county board, we don't like this type of machine yeah. because then, we can't do X, Y, and Z with it, then but the then, county can say we're but not going to buy it. Board of Election staff said they tested the touchscreen machines and did not find there were any significant security concerns. In the meeting, staff members said they would vote to approve the machines if they could. Commissioner Kellner voted no to the certification, but the other Democrat on the board, Andrew Spano, voted with the two other Republicans, so the measure was approved. Sarah Goff is with the government reform group Common Cause, one of several groups who wrote a letter to the board asking that the machines not be approved. Goff, speaking before the vote, says New York already uses the best available voting machines, and that should not change. Our concerns are really that why would we move away from the gold standard that we currently have, in which a voter marks their own ballot and it's scanned in, to move to a system that is more insecure, it's incredibly expensive. Um, and the idea of transitioning voting machines 
right before a very consequential election cycle in 2024 just seems like a bad idea. Goff says the questions about the machines will just fan the flames of misinformation regarding the safety and security of the U.S. and New York state elections. In a statement following the vote, Common Cause called the certification of the machines an exceedingly poor decision. The touchscreen machines could be in place as early as Election Day next year. Two other machines made by Clear Ballot and Dominion that employ some touchscreen functions were also approved. Election officials say those machines also went through thorough testing and are safe. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. New York State Assembly Speaker Carl Hasty was in Columbia County this week as part of his annual statewide tour. The Legislative Gazette's Samantha Simmons was there and filed this report. Before heading to Hudson, the Bronx Democrat visited a Habitat for Humanity project in Philmont to discuss affordable housing in rural parts of the state. Hasty says Governor Kathy Hochul's ambitious housing plan, which was rejected by the legislature this year, needs to be more inclusive to make it through the 2024 session. We feel there's a need to address it. We still think that a larger more inclusive plan um, has to happen, including uh, discussion of uh, uh, union uh, wages and uh, PLA. So um, we're not going to be able to do a statewide plan in that way. I think we have to come up with a a statewide plan, but I also think um, we have to come up with a plan that works for everybody. PLA means Project Labor Agreement. Hochul turned to executive actions this summer to advance her plan. Hasty says the $100 million first-time homeowner assistance program included in this year's budget is a step toward inclusivity. Hasty says after Hochul's plan to add 800,000 new housing units fell flat, there needs to be community buy-in for such a proposal to work statewide. I just think, uh, you know, a lot of the conversations over the last few years has only been about affordable, affordable rentals, and we want to encourage uh, more affordable uh, home ownership. In a joint statement with fellow Democrat Andrew Stort Cousins, the Senate Majority Leader, Hasty said a state housing plan must include protections for tenants, not just new construction. Speaking with reporters, he also rejected a published report that said lawmakers were preparing for a special session this fall to take up the Seneca Gaming Compact. We haven't had any discussions about coming back. Uh, and what I, what I also think is we can't rush into something. Democratic Assemblywoman Dee Dee Barrett of the 106th District joined Hasty for the visit. There's nothing like seeing firsthand to really understand the challenges and, you know, why we can't do a one-size-fits-all across the state. Al Valencia is CEO of Columbia County Habitat for Humanity. He says the nonprofit receives grants contingent on the cost of the build and the home buyer's income through the state's Homes and Community Renewal Program. There's never enough. There's never enough. For her part... Hochul has said conversations about the state's housing crunch with the legislature will continue. In Philmont, for the Legislative Gazette, I'm Samantha Simmons.
you are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Governor Kathy Hochul, along with New York City Mayor Eric Adams and State Attorney General Tish James, announced new targeted steps to address the roots of gun violence this week. Mayor Adams says the $485 million plan known as a Blueprint for Community Safety will pour resources into New York City communities and neighborhoods most affected by gun violence. Governor Kathy Hochul, for her part, says the state will contribute $30 million to the effort. This comes after New York City and major upstate cities have faced a scourge of gun violence, including in the state capital, Albany. To that end, I spoke with Albany County District Attorney David Soares this week and asked him about the governor and mayor's funding announcement. Well, I was very pleased to hear about those investments in New York City. Now, there weren't a lot of details with respect to exactly where those dollars are flowing to, but I understand the state has put in $6 million and uh, the other 479 I believe, were pre-existing dollars, and I guess they'll be deployed specifically. $30 million from the state, plus $6 million to help the city beef up its gun violence prevention tax force. W- wonderful. And my hope is that we're going to see some of similar investments um, here, here in Albany. You know, the, the problem that we have, and, and this is a problem that I think exists in every community, is the fact that so much of public safety is foisted upon the shoulders of law enforcement and the criminal justice system. We have a function, to be sure. Our function is to remove from community those people that continue to present a clear and present danger. But there are other functions that need to be had, and what we're seeing happening right now in New York City is it is an example of that. You know, the federal government used to have programs that were titled Weed and Seed, which basically describes what is necessary for every community to flourish. It's law enforcement weeding out the, the problems, and then local government coming in and, and seeding those same communities in hopes of that, that, you know, we have wonderful fruit to bear. And what we do not have in communities right now is investment. Part of that is because you, you have crime that, that will run out private investment. When you have communities where CVSs are closing, where, where Rite Aids are closing, where McDonald's are closing or Subways are closing, that's a problem. That is a problem because those, those businesses can flourish anywhere. But it's crime that drives those businesses out of our our communities. So private investment, you're not going to see. Government investment, we need to see more of. The news that caught my eye this week when I found out I'd be speaking to you on the Capital Connection, and we are speaking to District Attorney David Soares of Albany County, that Judge Jeffrey Zimmerman blasted New York bail laws. He's on your side, David. He called it a mess. He quoted the Grateful Dead from their song Box of Rain, and he said clearly the bass player and lyricist of the Grateful Dead had never read New York's bail reform statutes. Instead of direction, the statute provides judges with obfuscation and legislative sleight of hand. Now we're talking about judges here, and you've, I know, always advocated for giving the judge discretion. Look, I don't know why I have to always start (laughs) conversations with saying that I am a Democrat. As a matter of fact, I am a progressive Democrat. Would some argue with you on well, that? I think th- I think they do because I haven't lost my senses. Um, but what we have seen by way of criminal justice reform is nothing short of recklessness. When you remove from the criminal justice system the ability of judges to exercise discretion to even consider dangerousness, that to me is insane. 
we are in the criminal justice system. We deal with dangerous people. And the men and women who go out there put their lives on the line to apprehend dangerous people. Prosecutors can't articulate how dangerous these people are. Judges can't consider it. And the only thing a judge can consider is whether or not this individual will appear next time in court. So we're not taking into consideration the safety of community anymore. What we're doing is taking into consideration whether or not um, a defendant is going to be punctual. That, to me, is the height of insanity. You know, we see what many argue is unequal justice under the law because of the way our criminal justice system is organized. So, for example, we'll just use a real simple analogy and I'll get your reaction. Those with the most money win in this game because they can hire the lawyers to weed through the evidence, to find the best arguments. And those with the least end up with the public defenders in a plea deal or worse. And because of that money gap, often the best defense is the best you can buy. Look, no one is ever going to, no one is ever going to argue um, the inequities that exist within the criminal justice system. Those are the same inequities that exist in the medical field. Those are the same inequities that exist in education everywhere else. It is up to us, right? When I say us, I mean it is up to my generation of criminal justice practitioners to leave the profession in a, in a better way than we found it and to make those steps towards progress. To me, it, it's a bit of insanity coupled with arrogance to believe that you can just legislate those inequalities uh, away by drafting reforms without the input of people who are primarily responsible for maintaining public safety. And so we have a much more dangerous state right now. doesn't matter what numbers people are quoting. Um, you know, the fact that New York City will continue to talk about, well, you know, gun crimes are down right now. Yeah, but are they down in the communities of, of color? Are, are they down in the very communities that they need to be down? Overall, they may be down, but they're not down where they need to be down. And then this idea that, you know, the reason that we did these reforms is to bring some balance uh, to the system and to deal with the, um, the, the number and volume of people of color in the system. Well, have you considered the, the, the black victimization? <laughs> like... You literally have placed your thumb on the scale of the criminal justice system and what you see when you when you hear about increases in assaults or increases in gun violence, that also means that there's black and brown increases in victimization because the individuals who are perpetrating these crimes, they're not going outside of their ethnic group. They're not going outside of their community to perpetrate these crimes. They're perpetrating these crimes on their neighbors. I don't want to get too philosophical about it. You've got to deal with criminal justice issues. But there is something at the heart of this. Why, for example, do we see a lot of gang crime? And you say it's gang on gang a lot of times. It's often not innocent, although there have been innocent bystanders. That happens a lot. But when we see a lot of this gun crime, it's maybe a vendetta against somebody else in another gang. You know, what's at the base of all this? It's hopelessness. I mean, at the end of the day, it's hopelessness. You know, Part of the issue that we have here is the fact that we don't communicate with one another, right? There is a third grade teacher right now in a classroom, in you know, a stone's throw from this building, who can tell what's happening in the life of a child, right? They can tell you right now which child is going to thrive, which child is having some issues. So those issues are identified very early on. The interventions that we're talking about 
need to be incorporated, and they need to be incorporated in a very fluid way so that there's intervention both in the academic setting, but once that kid leaves the school, it's not the city's problem. It's our collective problem, right? So that, that intervention has to continue all the way home. And then whatever after-school programs that the young person is involved in, those interventions have to be there too. Once we prioritize those interventions, we will see the decreases in crime. Building jails isn't the answer. You know, adding a thousand, you know, more police officers and prosecutors, that's not the answer. We are wise enough, intelligent enough. There's so much data that we have and we understand what the problems are. But we just don't have the political will to call it out and then to to take those steps to, to incorporate this. Right now, we're living in a moment where we want to blame no one. A terrible parent, <laughs> we see terrible parents all the time, but we don't want to call out terrible parenting. And so we're going to need courage in order to get through this this place that we're in right now. But going back to New York City, seeing those investments, that's a good place to start. But we also need to complement um, those wise investments with, with the laws that will enable us to remove and root out those weeds from the community. That's Albany County District Attorney David Soares. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Opponents of a proposal to move the headquarters of the Adirondack Park Agency from its current site in Raybrook to Saranac Lake are asking the governor to put a stop to the idea. The Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley reports. The Adirondack Park Agency was created by the state legislature in 1971 and has occupied the same building in Raybrook since it first opened. The governor and legislature allocated $29 million to modernize the headquarters. The agency is looking to renovate the historic Paul Smith Power and Light Building in Saranac Lake and construct an adjacent building. APA Executive Director Barbara Rice said a number of sites had been considered before focusing on Saranac Lake. This happened prior to me coming on as well as when I came on. When it comes to Saranac Lake and, you know, why it was chosen, it's consistent with the APA Smart Growth Strategy to channel development to Hamlet. And also it allows us to decrease our carbon footprint by reducing miles that our staff travel. Adaptive reusing um, a historic building is very important. It's more environmentally friendly um, than building completely new. Saranac Lake Mayor Jimmy Williams is enthusiastic about the park agency's potential move to the village. The Postmas Power and Light Building is a beautiful, historically registered landmark and it is desperate need of some serious restoration that we do not have capital for in our village budget. This project would restore that building and also provide a $30 million investment to our village in our village downtown. And then ultimately, the investment with the additional building, 
I think would be great. It's not a sale, it's a lease. So at the end of the lease, potentially that could be a huge, wonderful structure for the village of Saranac Lakes. Opponents have a number of concerns, including potential conflicts of interest, and they question why the agency is rejecting the idea of building on existing state land that cannot be transferred to the private sector. Former special assistant and economic advisor to the APA, Steve Ehrman, and 18 other former staff sent a letter to Governor Kathy Hochul outlining their objections. A member of the Saranac Lake Housing Task Force, Ehrman says his doubts escalated after talking to Rice about the proposal. I found out things about the project that made me even more concerned, namely the addition of a new building on a small site a site that is currently zoned by the village of Saranac Lake for multifamily housing. I started thinking that, you know, a site that's zoned for multifamily housing is being taken away, basically, by the park agency, which has a perfectly good alternative of building a new building on its current state office campus. Mayor Williams notes that there are a number of affordable housing projects in the village, but none at the proposed APA headquarters site. No one has ever approached the village about creating housing there. I have more opportunities to affect the housing crisis in different locations than I do to take care of that building and that property at that site. The second phase of a feasibility study on a proposed move by the APA to Saranac Lake is expected to be issued by the end of the year. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Pat Bradley. Capital Region Area Congressman Paul Tonko says the House of Representatives will be busy when it returns from the August recess. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas caught up with the congressman and filed this report. Speaking in his Albany office Tuesday, Tonko drew a contrast between how Democrats ran the House when they had the majority with how Republicans are running things since winning back the Speaker's gavel in November. As we passed one budget bill out of 12, and they need, as we know, to be done by the end of September uh, with the budget year coming fast to a close, we all have precious few work days by which to get that work done. Uh, I think it's in the single digits uh, in terms of work days. Uh, that means a lot of rush to get the things done. I'm hearing in order to get the Veterans Bill passed, there were commitments made to further reduce uh, the uh, the um, contribution, the the uh, ceiling level of these uh, of these budget bills, which is not the fair and effective way uh, to deal with the country's needs. Tonko says Republicans have a lackluster track record this Congress and says their agenda seeks to cut funding for veterans' benefits, restricts access to health care, and attacks the LGBTQIA community. He bemoaned the fact that very few Republicans voted for the PACT Act, which expands VA health care and benefits for veterans exposed to toxic substances. Suffice it to say, with this measure, um, we're reducing... Um, the impact of the Veterans Bill uh, by billions of dollars uh, in the MILCON bill, the military construction budget. That means that um, situations like um, PFAS, 
when that be addressed. Tonko says about a dozen people, the Freedom Caucus, effectively control the House after Speaker Kevin McCarthy's protracted election, making negotiations difficult. He expects there will be an even more painful outcome for issues like education and transportation and infrastructure and economic recovery. It's a difficult and trying moment, and uh, we need to inform the public that uh, uh, they need to be outspoken in their advocacy for the sorts of investments we need to continue good programs. With the budget battle heating up, Tonko says no one wins if it comes down to a government showdown. We have a responsibility to make certain that government is funding, that the programs, is, uh, programs are operating, and that life doesn't stop on September 30th. This is an irresponsible notion to even consider shutting down the government. Um, but the behavior is very difficult. It's very much easily predicted that they could take that for granted and move forward and not care about the importance of finalizing a budget uh, so that we can move forward and avoid a shutdown. But I hope that is not the case because no one wins. Tonko finds the Beltway focus on a potential 2024 Biden-Trump rematch tedious and troublesome. Because when you think of all the things we need to do, the climate crisis, if we haven't, our eyes haven't been opened by the extreme weather, the, the fires, the wildfires, the flooding, the downpour of rain, the uh, extreme heat, then I don't know what convinces us, but that's not the only issue. It's a continuing the progress made on inflation and avoiding the inflation, reducing the impact of inflation work opportunities, the investment in, a, in innovation, clean energy, precision economy, work that needs to be done rather than this constant everyday politic situation where people are attacking individuals on a personality basis rather than going to work and doing the people's business. Tonko also reflected on his personal accomplishments during the last Congress. Investing in the Chips and Science Bill for this area is really going to make us really, really strong, and in the infrastructure bill and the energy bill, to be the epicenter, the go-to area of the country for the eastern seaboard for offshore wind is incredible. But when it comes to like a personal surge there, I would cite also the medication-assisted treatment that will take a situation today that is responding to our crisis of, um, of opioid addiction with 135,000 people across this country that can prescribe um, medically to the people living with the illness of addiction and raising that number with my bill to 1.83 million. That's a huge amount of life saved and a huge amount of hope. And we need to respond to this illness of despair with hope. Tonko is in his eighth term in New York's 20th district. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. And that about does it for this week's show. The Legislative Gazette is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. You can listen to the Legislative Gazette anytime at wamcpodcasts.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Look for program number 2331. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina.